Well, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. It's great to be at the Lighthouse Baptist Church here in Alexandria. Would you find the book of Matthew in your Bible, please? The book of Matthew, chapter 26. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew, chapter 26. I've been looking forward, been praying forward to this meeting. I hope in this meeting, that you have some people that you're targeting. Now, the word targeting is used in a lot of different ways. Yesterday is college football day. Targeting means that you put your helmet on somebody and knock them over. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Don't put your head against theirs. Bam! No, no, no. Uh, But I do hope that there's some people that you say, you know what, I would love to get this person in church. And and just do what you have to do. If you've got to offer to take them out to eat, then take them out to eat and say, I'll take you out to eat. I'm going to spend some time with you. But after that, you've got to come to church with me. Now, in our, in our world today, coming to church, it's not as common to go with a friend to church as it used to. But you'll never know that until you ask that person, will you? You never know. You don't know the people that God has been working in their hearts for a long time. You just don't know that. And if you invite them, it could be what God uses to bring them to Jesus Christ. Brother Frank asked me, he said, Brother Paul, what are you seeing in your meetings uh, all over the country? I'm seeing people saved. That's what I'm seeing. Amen. And uh, the, there's a lot of things going on in our nation that are causing a lot of people, a lot of people concern. Uh, there's a lot of folks that, um, a lot of folks are afraid. You say, how do you know that? Because they're going out and buying guns. People that used to be uh, died in the war gun control people are now firearm owners. Why? Because they're afraid. That's why. And uh, we're not going to talk anything about that, but we will talk about a peace that only Jesus can give. And of course, that's to be found in the gospel and the gospel alone. So you just find some people, and you, if you've got some people that uh, you think, Brother Paul, my neighbor's the biggest heathen and the biggest atheist, well, invite them. You never know what God's going to do, all right? And uh, we'll, we'll just see what the Lord does. Well, you're in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we will recall, is in the last days, the last hours of the Lord Jesus' life here on earth as a man. Okay, it's hard to talk about a person who has no beginning and has no ending as far as his lifespan is concerned. But we understand what we mean by that. The Lord Jesus is about to die on the cross of Calvary. So in, in Matthew chapter 26, we understand these are his last hours on this earth. He, in, in Matthew 26, he will observe the last supper. He will be involved in a Jewish celebration of the Passover that he will alter the symbolical meanings of uh, many of those elements and he will change them into what we now observe as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. The Lord Jesus had created both of those and he has the right to change it however he wants. And so that's what he does. And, uh, and so all of that is taking place in Matthew chapter 26. Let's direct our attention to verse 17, Matthew 26 and verse 17. Can we go there, please? Verse 17, the Bible says, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, 
Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful. And began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said. Father, help us as we look at this passage of Scripture. Lord, there's a lot going on here. And yet, Father, I pray that the familiarity of this passage would not blind us to its truths. I pray that you would cause us to see and to understand what it is that you have for us here. Lord, speak to every heart, we pray. Prepare us for the revival services that are to follow here in this Sunday school time. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You understand, if you have read the story of the disciples, that they did some kind of boneheaded things from time to time. I mean, they just, they just really messed up. They, they said some things they shouldn't have said, did some things that they shouldn't have done, and we understand that. Now, before you or before I get, to get too hard on them and begin to uh, berate them, let's just understand, we do some boneheaded things too, okay? We, may, we do some things that are just knuckleheaded and they're just, you know, we look back on that and think, man, that... If ever I've done a stupid thing, it was then right there. Now, if you're married, you don't have to look back on it. Your wife will immediately let you know. She'll immediately tell you. Somebody said the only reason the Pope thinks he's infallible is he's not married. If he were married, his wife would tell you, hey, big shot, you ain't perfect. But anyway, the fact is we do some boneheaded things too, just like the disciples. And yet, the Bible tells us a narrative here. Things are tense. Things are headed to a very difficult a tra- a difficult uh, a climax. And it is a climax that's really going to be negative for the disciples. And, uh, and seemingly, well, we might say negative for Jesus as well. Although we understand that, Jesus, that the God of heaven will turn this negative climax into the greatest of triumphs. Because it is through Jesus' death that you and I are able to be saved today. And we can all say amen. And we can say Say praise God right there. But we understand the emotion that is all leading up to this. It's a tense time. Jesus has told his disciples, they didn't necessarily comprehend it, but he's told his disciples, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners and they shall kill him and three days he, and, and three days he shall rise from the dead. Now, they didn't remember that at the time. They didn't really even comprehend it. As a matter of fact, the Simon Peter looked at the Lord Jesus and he began to rebuke the Lord Jesus after, after he heard that announcement. So the, the disciples, there's a lot that they don't comprehend. There's a lot that they don't understand. But I'm here to report to you this morning in Sunday school that in the passage of Scripture that you and I just read, the disciples got something, one thing, decidedly right. They got it right. Now, there were times that they got some things wrong. You read about them, I read about them and all that. But here in this passage of Scripture, 11 disciples got one thing right. What did they get right? I want us to notice what the Bible says. Now, we picture the scene. They're all at this Passover celebration. There are 13 of them there, 12 disciples and Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in verse 19... Uh, verse 20, and as and now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. I'll say, okay, so we've got this in our minds. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. 
Now, this is a prophecy from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. I want you to picture yourself in the scene. It's not a church-wide fellowship. No, there's not that many people there. There's only 13 people sitting around this table. They have partaken of the elements according to the Jewish, according to the Jewish tradition. And the Lord Jesus is about to take some of the elements and he's going to change the meaning of them. And, uh, and we all understand that. We all get that context. But just for a moment, put yourselves in a place where no less than Jesus Christ comes to this group. Twelve guys and says, one of you is going to betray me. I want to ask you, how do you think people would respond? I think I know how a lot of people would respond today, Pastor. They would look down the aisle and they would say, oh yeah, there's Bartholomew. It's probably him. He's probably the one. I've been suspecting him for a long time. You know what? When Bartholomew first came on, I thought to myself, you know, the Lord Jesus picked him just like he picked me. And uh, I think he made a good decision when he picked me. But when he picked Bartholomew, I'm just not so sure. And they hear this awful, they, they hear this uh, prediction, and we immediately want to blame somebody else. Well, isn't that the way we do it? I, mean, I say the great American way is this. If you make a mistake, blame your neighbor. I mean, that's what we always do. I'm a victim here. I mean, uh, uh, Brother Merrick, I wouldn't have sung a wrong note except I'm sitting by somebody in choir and they led me astray. Uh, if I'd been by myself, I would have sung the right note. But no, they led me astray. You put me by them. I'm really the victim here. Hey, that's nothing new. That's been going on ever since the Garden of Eden. Don't we remember that? The Bible says God came to Adam and said, you've eaten of the tree. And what did Adam say? The woman whom thou gavest me, she gave me. Boy, isn't that, isn't that, just, isn't that just awful? Yeah. You're going to blame God for giving you a wife because you hearken to the voice of your wife. But that's the way humanity is. That's the way we are. And you know what? I might expect the disciples, after hearing this awful prophecy in verse 21, verily I say unto you that one of you should betray me, I might expect the apostles to look down and say, oh, it's going to be Peter. You know, Peter's got a big mouth. He's always mouth and mouth about say, I bet it's Peter. You know, you know, I'm a little concerned about Andrew. He's a little more quiet and I think something sneaky is going on with Andrew. That's the way we would think, isn't it? But that's not what the disciples did on this, this momentous night. This, mo- this night is going to get worse and worse as time goes on. I mean, Jesus is going to be out in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and they're going to come in with an armed mob, armed with all kinds of weapons, and they're going to grab the Lord Jesus and take Him from the place of prayer. We know all of that. And yet, for all of that here at this time, the disciples got something right. What did they get right? And if they got it right in this instance, maybe, just maybe, you and I could follow their example today, all of these years later. Let's look at what the Bible says. We're in Matthew chapter 26, verse 21. Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, the one of you shall betray me. Verse 22. They were exceeding sorrowful. Oh, I guess we would be too. There are very few things as despicable in this world as betrayal. I don't know of anybody in here that's ever named your dog Judas. You haven't. As a matter of fact, the only reason you have a dog, probably, is because a dog is known for not betraying. A dog is normally faithful. 
unless you have a chihuahua. And then I don't know why you have a chihuahua. But anyway, normally, normally dogs are known for being loyal and being faithful. I mean, they're not known for their intelligence. If you have a dog for, for its intelligence, uh, you're going to fall short. You need to find a friend, a human friend. They're far more intelligent than a dog, all right? But why do we have a dog? We have a dog because of its faithfulness. And yet nobody, nobody names anybody that, uh, that Judas. Why? Because Judas is the, the ultimate picture of betrayal. Someone to whom a trust had been committed and someone who, who voluntarily betrayed that trust. We don't like people who betray this country. I remember reading when I was a boy, I remember hearing about this story and remember it being just an awful thing. A man by the name of John Walker lived in this state. He didn't live in this area. He lived in the Norfolk area, the Tidewater area of Virginia. In those days, uh, you didn't know it if you were alive at the time. I didn't know it. And uh, in fact, you would have no way of knowing it until a book came out in 2004 entitled Blind Man's Bluff. But at that time, the United States Submarine Force was the greatest submarine force in the world. Not only were we a powerful force, but we were so far ahead of our next rival, the Soviet Union. Well, in order to even up the playing field, the Soviet Union knew that we, that they were in trouble. And so the Soviet Union contacted a man who worked in communications in Norfolk, Virginia. And he, and then they contacted him and they said, hey, we will give you money if you will make copies of all the submarine communications from the Atlantic that come through the Norfolk base there in Virginia. And if you will give us, deliver copies to the KGB, we will give you money. And so that's exactly what happened. Until one day the FBI began to notice some things and they began following John Walker. And they followed John Walker to this particular park. They saw him drop a briefcase and they saw him leave the briefcase and somebody else came and got the briefcase and then money was deposited in John Walker's account. I remember the story of that coming out. I remember how angry I was. You understand, I'm of the generation where everything Russian is evil. Okay? That's just how I grew up. I grew up hearing, uh, hearing the president, Ronald Reagan, talk about, about uh, how this is our strategy in the Cold War. We win, they lose. I remember that. I remember him also talking about, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. That being, those being the awfulest words in the English language. Maybe that's not a good thing to say in this church. But I remember our president saying that at one time, okay? I remember those things. And so I remember as a young boy being filled with American zeal and thinking to myself, how could John Walker deliver secrets to the enemy? He has betrayed us. Oh, I remember people calling for John Walker's death. He needs to be tried and convicted and shot at dawn. Or shooting is too good for him. Hang him from the nearest oak tree. I mean, they were. I remember people saying those kinds of things. Why? Because he betrayed his country. That's we see that as a problem. So I suppose when Jesus looked around and said, "One of you shall betray me," they were exceeding sorrowful. One of us is going to betray you. That's awful news. But then notice what they began to do. And began every one of them to say unto him, look at this now, this is, this is where they got it right. Lord, is it I? Now, if you don't get anything else from this Sunday school lesson, I want you to get this. The greatest question that you and I can ask ourselves whenever we sit under preaching is this. Lord, is it I? 
I want to talk to you about that question. I want to talk to you about that response. Here, the Lord Jesus has given this awful prediction, a dire prediction. A prediction that you wouldn't want to be guilty of betraying the Lord. I wouldn't want to be guilty of betraying the Lord. And yet, to no less than his 12 disciples, the Lord Jesus has just made that prophecy. One of you shall betray me. You are going to turn your back on me. And every one of the disciples, instead of blaming someone else, they immediately began to search their own hearts. And rather than search their own hearts, they went to the God who knows them more than anything else in the world. And they said, Lord, I'm not content to search my heart. Lord, I want to know from you. You who know the end from the beginning, you who spake and it was done, you who commanded and it stood fast. I want to know from you. I want to know from you. Lord, am I the one? Lord, is it I? You see, we are to consider others first when in matters of service. If I'm going to serve somebody else, I want to serve others before I serve myself. Listen, I'm a father. That means that I am, I'm to rule my home. That means that I'm going to, as I lead my home, I'm going to be a servant. And I'm going to teach all of my family members to be a servant. Now that means that uh, I have authority. Yes, it does mean that. But the Lord Jesus, even the Lord Jesus, when he came, he said, I am among you as he that doth serve. So being a servant is important. I'm to consider others first when I serve. But I'm to consider myself first. When I look at the matter of sin, this is what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said in verses 3 and following, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Now, what is a beam? Well, think of it as an 8-foot 2x4. Let me do eye surgery on you, brother. Uh, Here, I I got it right here. Bam! Oh, sorry. It's it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous on purpose. And yet that's, we live in, we live in a world where we're so good at passing judgment upon other people while we are all the time ignoring the shortcomings in ourselves. And, and I'm telling you, it's a problem in revival. Man, the evangelist gets up and he preaches on something and you think to yourself, man, I wish my boss could have heard this. Man, I wish my brother had been here. I wish so and so would be. I wish, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, but there is something wrong with that if you think that and you never consider maybe God was ringing my doorbell tonight. Maybe I might better go answer the door. Maybe that message was designed for me. That's what the, that's what the disciples got right in this passage of scripture. That's what, I mean, it wasn't so long ago in the context of the Lord Jesus' life that they did some boneheaded things. It, was, it wasn't too far removed chronologically from this incident that they're walking along and they said, uh, Jesus just got a question for you. Who is the greatest? I personally think it's me, but uh, who is the greatest? Would you tell us? And, uh, and the Lord Jesus had to set him straight. The Lord Jesus is about to give his life on the cross of Calvary. And they're talking about these things. But here is a shining light of example from these 11 men to you and to me. One of you should betray me. Lord, is it I? I want you to consider some things with me this morning. I want you to consider the background of this question. The background of this question. We know the apostles' background. They knew Jesus. They knew Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, you don't have to turn there, but we're familiar with the story if we've been in church a while. Matthew 16 and verse 16, the Lord Jesus has asked them a question. 
He says, whom do men say that I am? That's an interesting question. Uh, just kind of wanting to hear the local gossip. You guys have picked up on it. What, 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 are you, what are you hearing out there? You go to the markets of Sychar. You go to the markets of Judea. and You go to the markets of Galilee and, uh, and, and, and all of that. What, what do people say? Whom do men say that I am? Well, that's an easy enough answered question. Well, there's some that say one thing, some another. Some say, that you're, some say you're John the Baptist. That's exactly what Herod thought. He heard, that, he heard the miracles of the Lord Jesus, and he wrongly assumed that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. So some say you're John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, some people say that, uh, some people say you are the, the prophet. The prophet that's supposed to come into the world, that's, uh, that's the fulfillment of the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses prophesied, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you like unto me, and, uh, and so forth, and him shall the people hear. So some people think you are that prophet prophesied by Moses all those years ago, and some people assume that you are that prophet. Others say, no, you're not that prophet, but you're another in a line of Old Testament prophets. Some would compare you to Jeremiah, and some would compare you to maybe uh, some other prophet, but uh, that's what people are saying. So we expect for the people on the outside, sometimes their ideas are right, sometimes they're wrong, sometimes they need a little correction. Okay, that's fine. Then the Lord Jesus asks a follow-up question. Whom do ye say that I am? Interesting. Simon Peter answered and said unto him, Matthew 16 and verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We understand Christ. Christ is the, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed one. And so Christ, whenever we refer to Jesus as Christ, we are acknowledging that Jesus is the promised Messiah, promised to the Jews, come into the world, and uh, the one who gave his life to save us from our sins. That's what Peter, that's what Simon Peter said that Jesus was. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So these people knew Jesus. I want to tell you something. The message that I'm preaching today is for people that know the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how it is. I don't know how it happens. But as you and I go further and further in our walk with God, we get to the place where we're really good at seeing sin in other people, but we never stop to ask ourselves the question, Lord, is it I? Am I the one that you're supposed to be talking to? Now, I, I just have a theory. I don't know that this is true, Pastor, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a theory that sounds really good. And it makes me seem intelligent. So anything that can make me seem intelligent, I'm all about that. Because there's a lot that makes me seem unintelligent. So if it makes me seem intelligent, I'm going to give it to you. We live in a world today that is more and more governed by access to the Internet. You now hold it in your purse or in your pocket or and, and things like that. And some of you can access it on your wrist. You can access the Internet. And that's, that's, that's just part of our world. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. Part of that world is what we refer to as social media. Now, maybe you're a part of social media. Uh, I'm part of social media. Uh, I have a, an Instagram account that I used to check once a month. Now it's down to once every two weeks. So, I mean, I, I don't know how active that makes me, but that's the way I do it. Now, maybe you're different. Maybe you would get a Facebook, uh, a Facebook notification and you check it the same day or maybe the same hour. Or maybe you're like some Northern Virginia drivers. You check it that same second and uh, doesn't matter what uh, traffic all around you is doing. I asked the pastor, I said, uh, does this individual know that the white lines were painted in the road for a purpose? They actually are. As a matter of fact, you're supposed to, most of the time, keep your vehicle in between those lines. That's the idea. 
There were some motorists that didn't evidently understand that, and uh, they thought the white line was supposed to split the middle of their vehicle in half, I guess, as they swerved back and forth. But we understand that we live in a world of social media. Hey, in social media, you are given the opportunity many times throughout the course of your week, if not your day, to like, to dislike, or to share something that you encounter. Now, is there anything intrinsically wrong with that? No, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. I mean, somebody, my da- with my daughters, it's puppy videos. They want to send me a puppy video that they found online. Oh, look at this puppy. Isn't he so cute? Look at him as he dives in the pool and he crawls through the, he crawls through the pool filter and crawls out that way. Isn't that so cute? I guess, um, Whatever. Okay, so there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, but but think with me for a moment. Like, dislike, share. Those are your three options. Does not that put you in a position of being a judge? Now, what you're judging is trivial. I, I I'll grant that. Whether a puppy video is good enough to share or not, that that's not going to impact the world uh, greatly. But what? But my point is this: that puts you and that puts me in a position of being judge all the time, all the time, so that it has created a greater propensity in mankind and womankind. I include everybody, but it has included a greater propensity for us to judge other people. People, somebody comes to me and they say, well, you know, I don't ever judge. That's a lie. You judge people all the time. That's right. You judge people all the time. Amen. We are in the habit of judging what is good and what is right. And that's a good thing. If you go to a, if you go to a restaurant, you better judge. If the food is lousy, let me give you a hint. Don't go back. Okay? Make a judgment call. We make judgment calls all the time. Okay, if there are roaches crawling up the, mall, the, the, the wall of the hotel, your pastor wants to know. He wants somebody to make a judgment and say, don't put the missionary there. Now, I didn't have to deal with that because I was on the fifth floor. They didn't get that height, but no, I'm kidding. But the, the truth is, we make judgment calls all the time. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that until you and I sit in the position where we judge ourselves. And when we judge ourselves, usually we say, I am okay, other people around me need to change. Isn't that the way we look at it? I'm okay, other people around me need to change. That is not the attitude of these men here. It's not their attitude at all. Instead, they who knew knew Christ said, Lord, am I the problem? Notice, not only did they know Jesus, they had worked for Jesus. We can read about it in Matthew chapter 10. We won't, but the Bible says the Lord Jesus sent them out two by two. What did he say? Heal the sick. Uh, he, said, he said, cast out devils. He said, freely give, receive, freely give. So what did they do? They went out and they, they had worked for the Lord Jesus. They did things as apostles that you and I don't have the power to do. And God was working miracles through them. Boy, we, they had worked for Jesus. What am I saying? I'm saying this message of Lord is it I, it has nothing to do with the fact that, well, you know, I've been church for several years. I don't need to, I don't need to ask those kind of questions anymore. No, no, no. The disciples knew Jesus. They had worked for Jesus and nevertheless, in spite of all that, they still realized when this awful prophecy was given, I need to first of all examine my own heart. 
want want you to consider something else. Not only the background of the question, but the burden of the question. The burden of the question is, it's self-examination. Examining others leads to pride and self-righteousness. If we would, we are not of the number that compare ourselves among ourselves. Some people compare themselves among themselves, and the Bible says that's not wise. It may not be, it's not wise, but that doesn't keep us from doing it, does it? Well, I'm a whole lot better than he is. I'm a whole lot better. I'm a whole lot better driver than they are. I'm a whole lot better person than they are, and on and on and on it goes. But here, in this passage of Scripture, the burden of this question is on the one asking it. Lord, is it I? Is it I? When was the last time you came to the house of God asking a question? Lord, the message is being preached. Is this message intended for me? Every time we hear the Word of God, we need to ask ourselves that question. Here the disciples got it right. The background of the question, the burden of the question, I want you to notice there's some benefits to this question. There's some benefits. Examining yourself. When you hear this awful, awful message, one of you shall betray me, instead of looking around and saying, I wonder which one it is. No, no, no. Instead, they immediately looked at themselves and they said, Oh, oh, I need to, I need to have the God of heaven examine my heart. What does that do for you and me? Well, let's consider. First of all, it opens the door to grace. Why? Because when you say above everything else, Lord, is this message for me, that requires humility on your part. Now, I don't know why we would ever want to run from the concept of being humble before God. That doesn't make sense to me. Why? Because James 4 and verse 6, 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. That's just what the Bible says. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. One of the things that, that, that I deal with from time to time is uh, people who don't, they don't put their little children in the nursery. Uh, if you're a new mother and a new father, and you just, you just can't, Bear to be away from that little cherub that's come into your life for, for an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, uh, you, need to, you need to try to work to get to that place, okay? Because one day they're going to go off to school and other things. But uh, honestly, it, it really is bad. And I'm going to tell you why it's bad. Because I do not have the personality. I do not have the illustrations. I do not have the jokes to be able to compete with an 18-month-old kid. Right? Now, Pastor Bishop, maybe he does. I don't know. But this is the way it usually happens. You get an 18-month-old kid, and the 18-month-old kid stands up in the pew. And he's turned backwards, all right? The action is going on up there, but he stands up in the pew. And when he does that, what happens? Well, whatever's going on up there, you stop paying attention, right? And you look at the little kid. That's not because you're bad people. It's just because a little kid is irresistible. I mean, a little 18-month-old kid or Pastor Bishop, uh, I'm looking at the kid, right? A little 18-month-old kid or Evangelist Paul Crow, the kid's going to win that one too. That's just the way it is. So every little 18-month-old is a born entertainer. 
Some, many of them grow out of that and as they get older, but not at 18 months old. I mean, they're just, they're, they're hands. So what is he going to do? And they're looking around. They don't really have a plan, but they look around and they, everybody's looking at me. <laughs> and what do they think? That makes them feel good. So they smile. And once they smile, if you were paying attention before, you're sure not paying attention now. And then they see everyone smiling at them and they think, and what do you do? You laugh at them because it's goofy. It's cute. It's funny. And it does, I mean, Pastor Bishop could be standing on his head, gargling peanut butter and spitting nickels and you wouldn't be paying attention. You're watching the little kid because the little kid is just, you and your attention is drawn. My attention is drawn. That's just the way it is. I was preaching in Minnesota two weeks ago and there was a man who had written an entire Bible commentary uh, on the entire Word of God. He's published many different books and all of that. But because he was sitting with his adopted grandkid, he wasn't paying attention to me the whole service. He just wasn't. I don't, that doesn't lower my estimation of the man in my mind. It just makes him a human being. Because you and I can't resist those little children. And so what does a little kid do? He thinks, well, if I hit on the pew one time, and that got a reaction. Let's hit on the pew twice. See what that does. <laughs> and what do you do? You laugh because it's goofy. It's funny. And then maybe, depending on the personality, he goes, <laughs> and then by that time, the entire side of the auditorium has devolved into pandemonium. And they're laughing at this little kid. Why? Because you and I cannot resist that little toddler. I mean, that little toddler just captivates our attention and we want to see what they're going to do. It's just captivating. We can't resist that. Are you listening? We serve a God that cannot resist someone who humbles himself. God cannot resist that. Just as your attention is drawn to the little child, so God's attention is uniquely drawn to that man or woman that humbles himself before him. The Bible says, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, hear it, with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the heart, the, the heart of the spirit and to revive the, the heart of the contrite. God says, I live to give life to those who humble themselves before me. Micah 6 and verse 8, He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. I want you to understand the benefits of asking this question, Lord, is it I? The, the first benefit is that because it opens, it opens the door to grace because we humble ourselves. I want you to consider something else. Not only does it open the door to grace, but it naturally leads to confession of sin. Confession of sin is not a bad thing. Why? I I do not understand. I do not understand why we would shy away from confession of sin. I don't understand, Pastor, why when I preach a meeting, I preach and preach and preach and preach and people got to wait till the night before it ends before they'll get right with God. I don't understand that. The, the, the blood of Jesus Christ stands willing to cleanse you from your sin. It stands willing to cleanse me from my sin. So then why do we hold on to it? 
Why do we hold on to our sin? Why do we hold on to our bitterness? Why do we hold on to our iniquity? Why do we hold on to our, our, our fleshliness? Why do we hold on to that, that wicked habit that's enslaving you online? And uh, why, why, why do we hold on to those things? Why not just get rid of them and say, Lord, I have done with this. Like a poison, like a cancer. I want to cut it off. I want to get it out of my life so I can be clean. So I can be right with God. And when you begin to say, whenever whenever a message is preached, instead of looking and saying, I wonder who this might apply to, if instead you come to God and say, Lord, this message has been preached. Lord, is it I? All of a sudden, that naturally leads to a place where you can confess your sin. Because if the answer is yes, then the follow-up question to the Lord is that I is, Lord, would you forgive me? And would you give me the strength and the power to be who I ought to be? But that only happens when we ask ourselves the question, Lord, is it I? First John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what part of that verse is bad? What part of that verse is negative? Faithful, righteous, just, that's God. That's always true of God. And God in His faithfulness and God in His justice and God in His righteousness, He's going to come and He's going to forgive me when I confess my sins. What part of that is a bad thing? He's going to be faithful. He's going to be just to forgive me. Listen, I need forgiveness. I know that I need forgiveness. You need forgiveness as well. If we, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. That's what the context says. If we say that we have not sinned, we are a liar. So... You've sinned, I've sinned, that's just a reality. And yet, this verse in the center of all that says, there's a faithful God who stands ready to forgive. What does that mean? Well, forgiveness emphasizes the fact that I have a debt. I don't like being in debt. I don't like it. I don't like the fact that I owe the bank money on my house. I don't like that. If I could somehow get that paid for, it'd be a wonderful thing. I remember when we bought our first house, we had about, for the Paperwork Reduction Act, we had about this many papers, you know, and you got to sign almost every other one. If you've ever sold a house, it maybe is not quite that tall, but there's a lot of paperwork to do. And then I remember when we sold that house. I remember on top of that great big stack of papers from the Union Savings and Loan Bank in Connersville, Indiana, in red letters, they had stamped on that, paid in full. What's that? That's forgiveness. You had a debt, a debt of sin. And yet when you bring that and confess it to God, the Bible says that big old heavenly red stamp comes out, gets some blood, uh, red blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and let's stamp it in blood, paid in full. What does that mean? Well, the word forgiveness also emphasizes a release, a release of guilt, if nothing else. Oh, there's a guilt that I carry around. It's a knowledge that goes with me everywhere I go that I've sinned. And yet when I come and I confess it to God, God removes that. And He takes away the debt of the sin. And He takes away the guilt of the sin. Uh, What is bad so far in all of that? 
What is negative so far in all of that? Why would we reel from that? Why would we push away? Why would we say to the Holy Ghost, No, Holy Ghost, I don't want you to convict me of my sin. No, no, I want to continue to go on. No, it would seem that we would invite Him. It would seem that we would say, Dear Holy Spirit, come and speak to me and convict my heart and change my heart. It seemed that we would do that. The Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Everything can be cleansed. It's a positive thing. Pastor, I need to go at 1045, don't I? That's when the service starts. We had better hurry. I didn't think I had that long a message. Let's continue. I'm talking about the benefits of the question. The benefits of the question, it opens the door to grace. The benefits of the question, it naturally leads to confession of sin. But I want you to consider this question, asking this question, focuses our efforts on where they can bring change. I think Satan is good about getting you and me to focus on things that we can't change. That's, that's really a brilliant strategy. Because if you focus on things that can't change, that you can't change, you frustrate yourself. And in the end, you're either going to stop exerting effort or you're going to be so frustrated that you're impossible to live with. I still submit that the 24-hour news cycles, that's all they're doing. They're trying to focus your attention and mine on things that we cannot change. And there's a lot of things, I mean, I, I hear all people, all kinds of people say, Our nation needs revival. True statement. True statement. There's nothing wrong with saying our nation needs revival. There's nothing wrong with that. But there must come a balancing time when you and I ask ourselves the question, Lord, is it I? Could it be that I am complicit in what the nation is doing? And I'm I'm telling you, I'm not saying this just off the cuff. I understand that in the Bible, in in the Old Testament, there are two men, a man by the name of Ezra, a man by the name of Daniel, and a man, three men actually, a man also by the name of Nehemiah. Both of those men lived in a time of national decline they confessed national sins in which they themselves had not been uh, involved. They weren't involved in those sins. But you know what the language they used was? We have done this. We have done this. We have done this. I want to stop and say, wait a minute, Daniel. When you were required of the, of the king to bow down, you didn't bow down. And yet you're, request, you're, you're, you're confessing this idolatry. What's the point? The point is there were some men in the Old Testament that said, it's not just the nation that's involved in this. I need to realize that I'm a part of this as well. And I need to focus my efforts on where they can really bring change. Every time you come to a message and you ask the question, Lord, is it I? You're focusing your efforts on where they can really bring change. Can't change my wife. Can't change my boss. But I sure can change me. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to be to every service of this revival meeting. But when you come, I want to challenge you to follow the example of of these 11 men. I wish I had time to go further into this story, but you realize these 11 men were so focused on themselves, they didn't get the truth of verse 25. What is the truth of verse 25? Well, that's when Jesus positively identifies. It's Judas. These disciples, they didn't get it. Why? 
It's not their fault. As a matter of fact, I contend it's a good thing. They are so focused on being right with God themselves, they miss the identification of Judas as the traitor. You say, how do you know that? Well, in the Gospel of John, it says that when Judas went out, everybody thought he just had some kind of financial matter to take care of. They didn't realize that he was the traitor. They didn't realize that he was going out to betray the Son of God. Why? Because when Jesus made that awful prediction, they were so focused on being right with God themselves. What about you, child of God? Not just for this revival meeting, but every time you hear the word of God preach, if you were to go forth from this place asking the question, Lord, is it I? It would help you from now until the day you get to glory. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to look into the word of God. We thank you for these disciples. Lord, they made mistakes as we do. But Lord, here in this passage of scripture, they shine forth a sterling example to every one of us every time we hear the word of God to ask the question, Lord, is it I? I pray that we would do that. And I pray that we would freely invite the Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts. And I pray that you would do that work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.